Welcome to Spooky Scary Skeletons. I am your host, Jeff Stevens. Tonight I'm joined with me, Mr. Jim Keel. Hello. And introducing for the first time my fiance, Julia Aguire. Hi. <laughs> uh, tonight's podcast is all about uh, Spooky Scary Skeletons, aka Creepypasta, and some true crime stories. Uh, this is a new podcast that we're attempting for the first time this year. It's only going to come out on Halloween, so it's going to be a once a year type of thing. Uh, and we really hope you enjoy it. So without further ado, let's get into our first story of the evening. Midnight Dancer. So, uh, this is actually by Mr. Bobas, B-A-U-B-A-S, uh, written about 2015. So, all right. Have you ever had one of those feelings that something was wrong? I don't mean during the day either, but at night. I mean that sudden, unprovoked feeling of dread that commands you to wake. Funny. It's almost like nocturnal evil gives something off that your sleeping brain picks up on. I had one of those recently. It forced me up at 3 a.m. Normally, when you have that feeling, you lay still, feigning sleep. Or if you're feeling adventurous, you take a quick check around the house. After you failed to discover anything, you'd inevitably crawl back to sleep. Should have done that this time. I should have stayed asleep. That night I sat straight up. For the longest time, I sat there staring into the dark of my house before I even realized that I was awake. Then came the fear, that slow, strangling feeling that constricts your chest and warms its way down your throat. I was alone in my home, wide-eyed and afraid with no explanation. I couldn't hear the telltale signs of a break-in downstairs or the phantom sounds of a leaking pipe. I had no reason to be freaked out, but I was. Without much thought, I got up and walked over to the window. I don't know why I did. I peeled back just enough of the curtain to poke my head through and I stared out into my moonlit backyard. I should have stayed asleep. Outside, prancing around my garden, was a clown. It had ruffles around its sleeves and collar, baggy pants and floppy shoes. Its painted white face was even topped off with a big red rubber nose. It was without a doubt the last thing I wanted to see at three in the morning. It danced in complete silence, doing a step that only a madman or a child could understand. Its playful manner was haunting. I watched with dread fascination as it circled the garden, trying my best to ignore the growing lump in my throat. It moved around, pausing occasionally to play with my gardening tools or sniff the budding plants. Then it waltzed over to an oak sapling I had planted and disappeared. I blinked. This was impossible. It walked behind the thin, infant plant, but didn't come out the other side. I should have seen it the entire time, but I didn't. It was like the clown had walked through a door hidden by the sapling. I should have stayed asleep. I hoped that everything was some sort of waking dream, pretending nothing happening was easier than the truth. The clown came back, though. Night after night, I watched it as it down danced around my backyard, and at the end of every night, it would vanish the same way. One night, it disappeared behind a garden hoe, only for it to appear seconds later from behind the lawnmower. The night, I found it digging a hole in the middle of the yard. I've never seen it do something like this before, and my immediate thought is, the clown is digging my grave. The hole got deeper and deeper as the clown dug until the top of the hole reached its head. Once finished, it, it stood at the edge of the hole, motionless, when out of nowhere it jerked its head around. My heart pounded so hard that I could taste the copper in my mouth. I'm about to tear away from the curtain when I see it bend down and pluck a flower. The clown put the stem between its teeth and planted the shovel firm in the ground before stretching out for ten suspenders and admiring its work like a farmer. My heart was still racing at this point, but I was just glad that they didn't see me. As if the thing had read my mind, it turned on its heel and stared right at me. Never thought I'd actually pray for a heart attack. It spit out the flower and ran toward me, its feet flopping to the sides. It stopped a few feet from the house, grinning at me with filthy orange teeth as it pointed to the hole and waved me over excitedly like a child showing off a finger painting. Frozen in place, the only thing I could do was furiously shake my head, no. <clears throat> The clown's smile fell and it scratched his head as if confused. Then it walked over to the hole and pointed at it again. I would have told it to fuck off if I could. It stood there for a moment before animatedly acting out its aha moment. 
I then waltzed over to the planted shovel and disappeared behind it. It's, I stared wide-eyed, hoping it would reappear in the yard like before. I silently prayed for this until the moment I heard my closet creak open. I should have stayed asleep. Dun, dun, dun. Alright. So that was Midnight Dancer. Midnight Dancer, I like it. So spoopy. So who would like to go next? Uh, I can do a true crime one. That works. Alright, so this one's, this one's, uh... It's it's true in the sense that it, it actually happened. It's not famous, but it happened to somebody that I know. Oh, um, okay. Um, and I'm just gonna I'm just gonna retell the story off my the cuff. So uh, when I was in fifth grade, I went I went to elementary school and he was in my class with a kid named uh, Nathan Mayoral. Um, and I can, I feel like it's okay to say his full name, and you'll figure out why at the end. Um, Nathan was just a normal normal kid in my fifth grade class and uh you know when you're in elementary school and you move on to junior high generally the school the school districts split so uh half of my class went to one school and the other half went to the new school for junior high um and we he went his way and i went my way and that was it uh in eighth grade two years three years later i was in the gym uh, at the beginning of the day somebody had plastered up uh, like kind of have you seen this boy posters uh, all over McDonald Junior High's gym, and uh, it was it was of Nathan, and I I was like what the heck, and I'm in eighth grade, so there's obviously nothing I can do about this, um, so we just we just hope, and you know I you know we, I talked to my mom and my best friend who was in the class with me at that time too was was there and talking to his parents and so on and so forth, and it it, it turns out uh, that Nathan had struck up a relationship. Uh, with another boy in eighth grade, um, and Nathan wanted to tell his parents that he was gay. Uh, Nathan, the, the 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 boy, I don't know his name, I don't know anything about him or anything, but the guy, the other guy, didn't want anything to happen, didn't want to be told, didn't want the information to get out there. But uh, it turns out that that kid ended up bashing Nathan Mayoral's head in with a pipe. And dumping him into a, uh, dumped him into a, a, a field, and uh, his body was found. I think like three or four months later, and uh, yeah, horrifying. The fuck. Yeah. That's terrible. Jesus Christ. Horrible. It it, uh, it definitely rocked, especially a lot of us who went knew him and went to school with him, and because he was our age, he was you know it was something that happened in Katy, Texas. Wow. That's that's man, I'm sorry. Ah, you know, it's uh it's horrifying, it's it's but it happened and it's kind of uh the first instance where I ever saw like something like that happen, you know, because of, of that situation. Wow. Well uh thank you for your story. Uh Julia, would you like to tell a story? I don't have a creepy pasta to read. I just have the creepypasta that has ruined my life the most. <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> so it's the creepypasta, and everyone's everyone in the world has heard it. It's the one where the girl or whoever is sleeping in her bed, and she hears a noise, so she reaches down for to like scratch her dog or whatever for comfort, and the dog licks her hand. Just so like okay, cool, whatever, and she goes back to sleep. Then the next morning she gets up and she hears dripping in the bathroom. So she goes into the bathroom and her dog is killed in the bathroom and it's dripping blood. And on the wall in the dog's blood is written, humans can lick too. And because of that story, because of that story, I can't sleep without covers on me. And that's why it makes me so angry that Jeff sleeps with the covers all fucked up. (laughs) I have never heard that one <laughs> Monsters and serial killers, but they can't get you if you're under the blankets. So, uh, I did not know that was the reason. Oh, so sorry. <laughs> uh, all right. Um, have you all heard about the acid bath murders before? Yes, I haven't. All right. Well, at least we got one person in the audience who hasn't. Is, is you, Todd uh, not telling Todd, one? 
Todd Todd's in the background. He's okay. producing. Uh, I I did forget to introduce uh, Todd Harden, our producer tonight. I apologize. I'm not Todd. a spooky person. He's not a spooky person, but he's here <laughs> listening to spooky things. Uh, so the Asabath murders. Um, this is actually really interesting. This took place um, basically in between 1944 and 1949. Uh, it was in the UK, and uh, I know Julie's probably going like, "Oh my god, of course it's in the UK." Okay. I also have another one from the UK, so you're welcome. After oh, this, wow. Oh wow. <laughs> Uh, so basically, uh, it's the story kind of ends with Olivia Durand Deacon. Uh, she's a 69 year old widow of a solicitor. She lived at the Onslow court hotel in London where she met a fellow hotel tenant, John George Hay, uh, Durand Deacon and Hay were friendly acquaintances enough for her to know that he worked as an engineer and for him to know that she was wealthy. Uh, basically, she made an appointment with Hay on February 18th, 1949 at his workshop, about 45 miles south of London, and she was trying to uh, discuss an idea about artificial fingernails. Uh, she was last seen alive the day of her meeting with Hay, wearing a fur coat and carrying a red purse. Um, her friends arrived at the hotel. Uh, they were worried they hadn't seen her for a couple of days. On February 20th, her friend Constance Lane uh, went to the Chelsea police station and wanted to report her missing. Hay escorted Lane when she made her report. Police were instantly wary of Hay, and they searched both his hotel room and his workshop on Leopold Road in Crawley. Uh, they came across a dry cleaning receipt for a woman's fur coat and papers referring to people named McSwan and Henderson in Hay's hotel room. At Hay's workshop, the police found a carboy, a container used to hold acid, a steel drum, a pump, and a revolver. Kelsey police questioned Hay on February 28th, 1949 about the evidence recovered from his hotel room. And he basically reportedly told inspectors, Mrs. Duran Deacon no longer exists. Uh, she has disappeared completely and no trace of her will ever be found again. <laughs> when asked what had happened to her, Not he responded, suspicious at all. Right. When asked what happened to her, he responded with, I have destroyed her in acid. You will find sludge that reminds that remains at Leopold Road. Every trace is gone. How can you prove murder if there is no body? So besides that, you this, just admitted to it. Yeah, he just he tells this <laughs> to the police, you know, which is which is great. Uh, this is day, not what I thought it was, by the way. This oh, is, it's not. Wow. Okay, so the day after these disturbing statements, Doctor Keith Simpson, a pathologist from Scotland Yard. Searched Hayes' workshop to retrieve what was left of Duran Deacon and to find more evidence. He identified finely spattered blood stains on one of the walls of the workshop and a puddle of yellowish white sludge on the side of the building. He suspected that the pool was all that was left of Duran Deacon. Uh, they removed his him and his team removed about 475 pounds of soil in and around the sludge, which they seemed to retrieve human remains of evidence. They discovered about 28 pounds of human body fat a partial left foot, 18 human bone fragments, three human gallstones, a complete set of dentures, and a handle to a red purse. Uh, basically, his whole MO was that for some reason he thought that acid was going to dissolve everything with the human body. Spoiler alert, it doesn't. Uh, yeah. So... This is the fifth murder that he actually did. Uh, between 1936 and 1949, he basically, uh, during the war, actually shot a couple of people and was like, oh, let me do some experiments. And he dissolved their bodies in acid and sold off their belongings. So that's that's the acid bath murders. Ugh. Did he not soak them long enough? Um, presumably not. So and he was impatient. He was impatient. But in addition to that, I don't think <laughs> even if you were like, I'm going to dissolve these people in acid, why would you just tell the police? 
He was proud. Of course he was proud, but that's just <laughs> fucking stupid. Oh, man. All right, Jim. What's your next story? If you have one. Oh, actually, I think Jim is away. Uh, Julia, you want to do your next story? Yeah. Um, so mine is true crime. Uh, this is Albert Fish, and he is a serial killer that I did a school report on in high school. And that's the most. That's the oh, most. That's the most uh, studying I've done. Oh, ever? Yeah. Okay. I was, like, really into true crime in, like, junior high, high school. Can you guys hear me? Yeah, we can yes. hear you now. Okay. Okay, sorry. Go ahead. I'm Albert Fish is fascinating to me. I know the story inside and out. Here and you tell it. I can't. Well, then, please, please correct me if I'm wrong because I did very little research. Oh, I have done a lot. <laughs> <laughs> um. So basically, Albert Fish, he's like famous for raping and killing children, pretty much. But a kind of gross story. Um. So he went on trial for the murder of Grace Bud in 1935 um basically he like showed up at her house to speak to her brother i think and he wasn't there so he like tricked her parents into like letting her go to a alleged birthday party that didn't exist and her parents just were like okay cool bye and he took this little girl and i don't remember how old she was you know how old she was jim yes uh she was seven no, I'm sorry. She was, she was like five. She was really young. She was under ten. Yeah, very young. But uh, was this one of your stories, Jim? No, it was not. <laughs> so he like lured her away to this abandoned house, and she was outside picking flowers. And he went upstairs into an empty bedroom, got naked, hid in a closet, and called her. So like she came up. And, like, obviously screamed and started crying when she saw him naked and, like, tried to ran run away. And he killed her. Um, and I'm trying to find the fucking letter that he sent to her mother. I have it up if you're, if you're, yep. if you want it. Yes, please. Do you I want me to somewhere. read it or do you want to read it? You can read it. I'm still looking for it. Are you, you sure? Yeah, right. it's fine. This I'm is the letter that Albert uh, Fish, Fish wrote to the parents of uh, little Grace Bud, uh, I think a couple months after the kidnap, because she was a missing child at that point. <clears throat> My dear Mrs. Bud, in 1894, a friend of mine shipped as a deckhand on the steamer Tacoma, Captain John Davis. They sailed from San Francisco to Hong Kong, China. On arriving there, he and two others went ashore and got drunk. When they returned, the boat was gone. At that time, there was a famine in China. Meat of any kind was one to three dollars a pound. So great was the suffering among the very poor that all children under 12 were sold for food in order to keep others from starving. A boy or girl under 14 was not safe in the street. You could go in any shop and ask for steak, chops, or stew meat. Part of the naked body of a boy or girl would be brought out and just what you wanted cut from it. And... Brought out and just what you want to cut from it was cut. A boy or girl's behind, which is the sweetest part of the body, sold as veal cutlets, brings the highest price. John stayed there so long that he acquired a taste for human flesh. On his return to New York, he stole two boys, one seven, one eleven. He took took them to his home, stripped them naked, and tied them up in a closet, and then burned everything they had on. Several times every day and night he spanked them, tortured them, to make their meat good and tender. First he killed the 11-year-old boy because he had the fattest ass and of course the most meat on it. Every part of his body was cooked and eaten except the head, bones, and guts. He was roasted in the oven, all of his ass boiled, broiled, fried, and stewed. The little boy was next and he went the same way. At that time I was living at 409 East 100th Street. He told me so often how good human flesh was. I made up my mind to taste it. On June 3rd, 1928, I called on you at 406 West 15th Street and brought you pot cheese and strawberries. We had lunch. Grace sat on my lap and kissed me. I made up my mind to eat her. On the pretense of taking her to a party, you said yes, she could go. 
I took her to an empty house in Westchester I already had picked out. When we got there, I told her to remain outside. She picked wildflowers. I went upstairs and stripped all my clothes off. I knew if I did not, I would get, I would get her blood on them. When all was ready, I went to the window and called her. Then I hid in the closet until she was in the room. When she saw me all naked, she began to cry and tried to run down the stairs her, and she said she would tell her mama. First, I stripped her naked. How did she kick, bite, and scratch? I choked her to death, then cut her in small pieces so I could take the meat to my rooms, cook, and eat it. How sweet and tender her little ass was roasted in the oven. It took me nine days to eat her entire body. I did not fuck her, though. I could have if I wished. She died a virgin. Oh, goodness. Like, that's rough reading that. <laughs> like, all of his accounts, like, you read his statements on the different, like, murders and crimes he did, and they're all just, like, super, like, matter-of-fact. Like, I did this, and then this happened, and, like, no remorse, no, no, like, it's, no yeah. anything. It's almost it's just, as if it's just, like, this is just what happened, and let me retell the news. It's very Walter Cronkite of him. Like, he's reading a recipe. Mm-hmm. Oh. So he went on trial for Grace Bud's murder, but he actually like killed several other people and he like one of his quotes is that he's had a child in every state and no one knows if that means that he raped a child in every state or if he ate a child, but it's probably yes to that question. He's just a creepy guy. He's a yeah, he he was the guy I don't know if you've ever seen house of a thousand corpses they kind of talk about him and it's kind of legend he used to push like inch like like uh six inch long like needles in his groin yeah like if you've seen the x-ray the of, x-rays, his, yeah. of his like pelvic reason region it's just like a porcupine and they, they, and they just leave him there he just leaves yeah well i mean how do you get him out at that point i guess yeah you're right <laughs> but like they said that um when they electrocuted him, they had to try it twice because the machine shorted out because of all the metal in his crotch. Yep. So, real, wow. real peach. All right, Jim, what is your story? So, um, speaking locally, have we ever heard of uh, a gentleman by the name of Dean Coral? No. Um, otherwise known as the Candyman. Oh, okay, okay. All right. <clears throat> to everyone around him, Dean Coral seemed like an ordinary person. He enjoyed spending time at the small candy factory his mother owned in an affluent neighborhood of Houston. He got along with many of the boys who came by just to see the candy come off the assembly line. He served in the Army during the Vietnam War and never had a criminal record. Neighbors described him as quiet, well-mannered, groomed, pleasant, considerate, and always smiling. Behind the smile, however, Dean Coral hid a deadly secret. Between December 30th, 1970 and July 25th, 1973, a total of 28 boys, ranging in in age from 13 to 20, disappeared from the Heights neighborhood five miles west of downtown Houston. They were all tortured and killed by Dean Coral. At the time, he was the most prolific serial killer in American history. Authorities never uh, ascertained a clear motive, and the more you dig into Dean Coral's story, the more horrid it becomes. He recruited two teenagers as his accomplices. One was 17-year-old, his name was Wayne Henley, and the other was 18-year-old David Brooks. They knew many of Coral's victims personally. A few of the dead boys were their friends. Ultimately, without the confessions of these accomplices, no one would have ever known what happened to the Lost Boys of the Heights. The accomplices, however, revealed all, including Coral's disturbing methods. The trio, trio used Coral's Plymouth GTX muscle car or his white van to lure the victims one by one over the span of two and a half years, Coral used candy, alcohol, and the promise of going to a party to get each teenager inside. Anyone who got in the van or car would never come back. Coral and his accomplices would take the boys to his apartment or house. There they bound and gagged each victim. Then Coral forced them to, forced them to write postcards or notes home to their families to say that they were okay and that they had run away. One victim, Mark Scott, was a friend of the two teenage accomplices. He was 17 and disappeared on the evening of April 20th, 1972. He was never seen alive again. His parents reported him missing after uh, frantically calling classmates, friends, and neighbors to see if they knew anything. 
A couple of days later, the Scott family received a postcard saying Mark found a job in Austin, paid $3 per hour. The Scotts did not believe that their boy would suddenly leave town without saying goodbye. Something was terribly wrong, and it wasn't until a year later they learned the truth. The horrors that befell Mark Scott were similar to those experienced by many other boys who crossed paths with Dean Coral. The torture that he inflicted on his victims makes his killings all the more terrifying. Coral and his accomplish, uh, accomplices would strip them naked, handcuff them to a piece of plywood, their hands and feet, and then sexually torture them in various ways before killing them. Coral got away with this for so long in part because no one suspected him. He moved frequently, often every two weeks. He kept, he kept mostly to himself. The murders only stopped because Henley, one of the accomplices, had finally had enough. The young man grabbed Coral's gun, screamed he couldn't kill any more of his friends, and shot Coral in the head rental home in the Houston suburb of Pasadena. It was the same gun that Coral had used to kill his victims. Henley and his fellow accomplices, Brooks, confessed shortly after. Detectives then learned that Coral rented a boat storage shed in another part of Houston, known now as Katy, Texas. Investigators found 17 victims buried there. Another six bodies were in the Bolivar Peninsula, while four victims were buried in a woodland area at Lake Sam Rayburn. Police didn't identify the 28th victim until 1983. What would turn such a seemingly ordinary man into such a deranged killer? Coral's parents divorced when he was young, after which he stayed with his mother. Some say that this caused him to develop anger toward male figures in his life. Another theory is that Coral's homosexuality played a factor. Supposedly, he had several sexual encounters with men, but Coral kept those private. Perhaps his inability to have a close personal relationship with anyone turned Coral deeper inward into darkness, and he wanted to act out some sexual fantasy with his male victims. Whatever Dean Coral's motives, perhaps the strangest part of the story is that hardly anyone knew about one of the most shocking mass murders in modern American history. There are very few photos of Coral. He was killed before being brought to justice. Journalists called him the Candyman or Pied Piper because he lured kids with candy and sweet talk. Nevertheless, his story received little attention and is little known today. The mother's, the mother's relative siblings and families of the victims, however, still remember what happened. Mary Scott, who was 83 in 2011, then told one reporter of the Houston Chronicle that she still thinks of Mark every time she sees a teenage boy who was around Mark's age when he disappeared. Seeing them brings tears to her eyes. As of Dean Coral's accomplices, they are still in jail serving life sentences for their rules of one of the deadliest waves of serial killings in the history of the United States. My goodness. Right around the corner. Yeah, I... I when you said candy man, I was like, okay, I know what you're talking about now. Well, one thing they, that this article didn't say because I tried to find something that was short. One thing that this article doesn't say is that like, I think it's like 14 of the boys' bodies are still buried so far deep into the surface they've never been able to recover it. Jesus. And that house in the Pasadena where all the bodies are is still very much a house. It's still very much it's people live in it. It's and and people know that there are bodies underneath. Did you, did you live in a place like that? I was watching this, um, it was like Paranormal Survivor or something on the Travel Channel, and there was this like old lady serial killer who would poison people, and like they were still finding bodies under her yard. Like, you couldn't plant a fucking bush without, like, oh, yeah. up a skull. Like, it's crazy. That's like, um, I remember reading an article, remember uh, Andrea Yates, the woman in, I think it was, um, like uh, it was close close to Houston, it was right outside of Houston, and they were like tr- having trouble selling her house. She she drowned her five children in her bathtub, and I'm like, well, no shit, you drowned yeah. your five children in the bathtub. Like that's that's gonna be a tough sell for the real estate <laughs> agent. Comes with a new bathtub. Bathtub for real, right? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, have you guys heard the story of the cannibal named Peng? I don't believe so. All right, this this will be an interesting, uh, especially because you're going to probably be revolted by the ending of this story. Uh, On the afternoon of June 13th in 1981, a Japanese man named Peng walked to a park on the outskirts of Paris carrying two suitcases. 
The contents of those suitcases were the dismembered body parts of a fellow student, a Dutch woman named Renee Hardeveld, whom uh, Pang had shot three days prior and had spent the day since eating various parts of her body. Uh, basically, he basically had urges for probably about 33 years, essentially. Uh, and it was basically, he would basically bring prostitutes back to his hotel room and he was trying to work up the courage to, uh, kill these girls by shooting them in the back of the head until basically he just, he couldn't hold it in anymore. And he basically shot Renee um and started his whole process basically he invited her to her, uh, his apartment for dinner uh, he planned to kill and eat her having selected her for her health and beauty um and he wanted to absorb her energy she was 25 years old uh, after she had arrived she began reading poetry at a desk with her back to him he shot her in the neck with a rifle he fainted I'm sorry, Peng then fainted after the shock of shooting her, but awoke with the realization that he had to carry out his plan. He raped her corpse, but was unable to bite into her skin, so he left the apartment and purchased a butcher knife. For two days, he ate various parts of her body, saving other parts in his refrigerator. He then attempted to dump her body in a lake, but was seen in the act and arrested by French police. When he was caught, he was carrying the two suitcases. Uh, his father, who was wealthy, basically, uh, provided a lawyer for his defense. He was held for two years awaiting trial. He was found illegally, I'm sorry, he was found illegally insane and was unfit to stand trial by the French police. Uh, he was ordered to be held indefinitely in a mental institution. Here's the crazy part. <laughs> This is the craziest part, and I, I cannot believe that this is a thing. He checked himself out of the facility. As one does. As one does. <laughs> <laughs> he checked himself out of the facility, and he is a free man to this day. In the 24 years of freedom that he has since enjoyed, he has experienced a level of notoriety ranging from perverse public intrigue to minor celebrity. He has published novels, he's inspired songs, he's been the subject of countless documentaries and magazine articles, and exploitation films in which he reenacts his crime. He's drawn manga novels and even directed his own personal pornography experiment. Effectively, he has made a living off of his crime. Uh, this is so crazy to me because I cannot believe that such a man is allowed to still be free, right? But there is a, a CNN reporter that actually went and talked to him uh, not too long ago. I want to say probably eight years ago. Still, He's still alive today. Um, but basically, if you walk through, she, she walked through his apartment, and he has an almost physical manifestation of his neurosis. Just inside the door, a wall-mounted black balaclava stands next to cabinets with gargoyle-like statuettes. Classic literature and trinkets collected over decades of travel, often with young girls he's met under dubious circumstances. And there's chairs piled high with stuffed children's toys. His room is like a 14-year-old boy's, adorned with countless images of young girls, some painted by himself, some taken from celebrity magazines. Um, this is also the craziest part. He still has the urge to eat people. Hasn't been caught, but apparently the urge is still there. And that's the story of Pink. I don't think that's something that you uh, recover from. No, it's not. But it's just like, I don't, I don't quite get it because the I Tokyo think, police is just like, meh. I think it, it's because, I the murder happened in France, right? It did happen in France. I think so it was that a, is why. What I remember reading was that it was a weird, a weird extradition mix-up that caused like him to be like, well, you can check out if you want to. We can't stop you. I think it has something to do with like the French government fucking up. And then, and then 
and yeah, not being able to hold them legally. So, uh, reading this article here, um, his subsequent publicity in France in his celebrity contributed to the French authorities descended to port in Japan, where he was immediately committed to Mata Suz. I'm not going to pronounce that. I'm sorry. Uh, a, a Japanese hospital. Uh, the examining psychologists there all declared him, declared him sane and found sexual perversion was his sole motivation for murder. Because the charges in France had been dropped, the French court documents were sealed and were not released to Japanese authorities. Consequently, Peng could not legally be detained in Japan. He checked himself out of the hospital and remained free. His continued freedom has been widely criticized. Well, and so the Matsuzawa uh, Hospital has actually apparently done this before and since. They've released people that were not well and that had, had in fact, killed or raped or done something horrible again. I just, I don't understand. If you, Why not? Have you, by any chance, watched, and, or any of you, watched the, I think it's like 21, 22 minutes it's a little Vice mini documentary about it. No, it's uh, it, it's it's a straight up Vice interview with the man, um, and it's an age day show like post you know him like him living his life now, and like yeah he shoots pornography all the time, like he's basically a porn star. That's so gross. It's horrific. That's just terrible. Oh, all right. Julie, do you have any more stories? No, that was my two. Those were your two? Okay. Uh, Jim, you got another one? I have I have a very, like, one-sentence one. Okay. And I have one that is more disturbing than not. I am not going to read the whole thing. Okay. I'm only going to get to a specific part, and then I'm going to stop because... I'm so excited for this. It's, it's, it, dude, I, it's, if I have the courage to keep reading this, I'll, I'll keep going. Okay. <clears throat> well, it's another day out from the office, my friend Dick Cheney said as he packed up his portfolio <laughs> and headed out from the Oval Office. He was the son of a former president and he was sat in, hold on. He was the son of a former president, and he was sat. He was in the first few days of his job. Well, Dick, I'm going home with my family. I'll see you tomorrow at 5 for Bible study, Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice said as uh, he, she went out from the White House. This is poorly written. Cheney couldn't help but smile at her upbeat moments. Uh, it was hard to get the Secretary of State to laugh because she was such a serious person. Dick headed out from the office to his private quarters. He couldn't wait to see his wife, Lynn, and spend time with spend the night in uh, in her arms. He was as excited as a kid who got a new toy for Christmas. He then went down the corridor of the West Wing. It was so quiet, you could hear a pin drop. All of the workers except the staff that managed the household had went home, so the West Wing was vaguely empty. Another day, another... Cheney was cut short by a platter that arose from the office next to his door. Who's there, he asked. I don't do voices, so I'm not doing a Dick Cheney voice. That's Dick Cheney's voice. Um, what no was answer. that show? The Little Bush? Little Bush. Something like that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no answer. He then kept on walking. Then clatter sounded again. What the heck? He asked. No answer. It came from the office of his chief of staff. So as a natural person, he went to, natural person. He went to check it out. He, he went into the office and saw nothing. Must be hearing things, he said to himself. Dick Cheney neglected to hear someone coming up from behind him, and the last thing he remembered was a blow and a bag being thrown, uh, bag being over his head. Dick Cheney woke up in a dark room. Took his surroundings. He took in his surroundings. The whole room was dark except for a single light hung from the ceiling. He was lying on a table, face down, and he tried to move, but he couldn't. Dick looked down and realized, to his shame, that he was naked on the table, bearing it all. He felt a deep tugging on his balls and saw that they were tied to a pulley with a ball attached to the end of the rope. <laughs> he then looked up and this saw This is a whole that... different kind of podcast. <laughs> he then looked up and saw that his wrists were tied behind his back. He then moved his legs and found they were shackled to the table. He heard a 
cackle and stirred in his sleep. He then heard a cackle in the room. Well, hello, Dick. Chaney tensed in the voice. It surrounded. It sounded so familiar, yet so foreign at the same time. Dark figure emerged from the shadows. He was clad in a robe with a hood. He looked to be non-human. Let me go, Dick said as he tried to wrestle his way free from the ropes holding him. But to no avail. It's no use, Mr. Vice President. You're stuck here. The figure pulled off the hood of the cloak, and Dick couldn't help but stare in horror. The man was well known for being a womanizing cheat, yet he never occurred to Dick that he'd be interested in guys, too. Bill! Dick rasped. Please let me go, Dick Dick asked, pleading. Oh, I'll let you go, as long as I get to have my way with you first. <laughs> I feel like they just picked this so they could use it's, the name Dick. It's, it's a- <laughs> Um, and I'm going to go, like, so far, and then I'm going to stop. <laughs> so if it gets super uncomfortable, just tell me, and I'll stop. <laughs> I'm going to have fun with you, Dick Cheney. Bill then took off his robe and dropped it to the floor. Bill was naked and was standing full frontal to Dick Cheney. Are you familiar with cock and ball torture, Cheney? He asked Cheney. Cheney tensed at this. You'll think you'll, you think I'll be your plaything, you sick fuck? How dare you? Bill smiled, and he grabbed the rope connecting Cheney's balls to the weight and pulled it swiftly almost had to bite down in order to avoid screaming from the pain. Better, Bill said. Bill then circled around Chaney and then gave Chaney's cock a couple of light flicks. Not enough to hurt, but to register discomfort. Now, you little man whore, I'm going to ride you like I do with women, and I'm not going to go from there. I can link it if anybody <laughs> wants it, but it gets very graphic. I feel like this is... What right, the well, fuck? I'll I'm going to skip to the end. I'm going to skip to the end. You liked it, didn't you, Chaney? Bill asked in a seductive purr. Chaney then jumped off the table. Go fuck yourself, you dirty pig. Why should I if, I, if you're already here? Bill cackled at his own joke. Bill then went over to the table and cut his bonds loose. Chaney found his clothes scattered all over the room, and Bill sta- started, to, uh, started to redress. Chaney felt goosebumps all up his back and saw that the door of the room had opened to the outside world he couldn't have gotten out fast enough he then sped down to the blair house when he then promptly locked the door and then stripped down naked he threw his clothes in the fireplace and he then rested on the bed naked he was so tired and drifted off to sleep now there's yeah, my, a I large think you confused I... I think you confused Glitterotica for creepy pop. <laughs> oh, did I? My bad. I'm sorry. Yeah. I'm I, gonna I figured disturbing and yeah. Um, like a Republican <laughs> nightmare slash fantasy. Yeah, a little bit of both. A little bit, of, a little bit of both. So I have, I have one more that's like one sentence long. Okay. Okay. <clears throat> and I'm gonna read it exactly how it's written. Okay. So you're with your honey and you're making out when the phone rings. You answer it and the voice is, what are you doing with my daughter? You tell your girl and she say, my dad is dead. Who was phone? Oh my God. <laughs> well, and then I'm going to make this, uh, make this real dark now. We're, we're turning back to creepypasta. Okay. Sorry. Rodic fanfic <laughs> episode is next week. I got it. Oh my goodness. It's the other <laughs> podcast. You're confused. Yes, yes. <laughs> oh my goodness. Um, where do I even begin? <laughs> ah, Julia, I wouldn't let that on my podcast. Get the fuck out of here. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, this is going to be a little bit of a long one. Um, not me if this gets boring. Uh, this is actually from the UK. Should I say this in an English accent for shits and Please, giggles? for God's sake, no. <laughs> See, now I want to. But anyways, I will not. Uh, okay, so this happened to my brother-in-law two years ago. Uh, I'm telling the story exactly the way he told me. He appeared very genuine when telling it. You know what? After all that's happened to me, I have no reason to not believe him. And as for you, well, you be the judge. I was in the English Army, you know, two tours in Iraq, one in Afghanistan. My mom absolutely hated the life I chose, and I can't really blame her. But you know what? The fucked up part is that the biggest tour I've ever experienced was in one of those shitty eastern places. No. It was in the very center of European civilization, London. After I finished my third tour, I was awarded by the Army. Apparently, surviving fighting Taliban in the mountains is enough reason to be honored. 
They offered me a spot in Queen's Guard. I'm not sure how much you know about that, but in England, it's a pretty big deal, and I hated it. I was permanently stationed at home, and as a reward for my bravery, I was now standing in front of buildings motionless while annoying Chinese tourists tried to make me laugh. I wanted out, but they honored the position, combined with my mother's happiness, that the biggest danger I could ever face would be as an Asian tourist, I had no choice but to do it. Only if I knew I'd be safe in some cave in Kabul. So I was stationed work at the Tower of London a few shifts a week. Shifts were usually two to three hours long, depending on how many people worked that day. Gotta tell you, that job gets old quickly. Drunk people who try to mess with you along with annoying tourists who think they're the first ones ever to try and make you laugh. You just want to have your own skin. But it was a job, and it paid. So I shut the fuck up, and I did it. Now this one day, this one day in 2012 started boring as any other day. And a few French guys trying to mess with me. God, they're the worst. And you can't do shit unless they threaten you. Then I had a drum group of drunk Russian chicks, which wasn't so bad. The heat was just starting to melt the fucking hat into my skull when a group of tourists showed up. Some sort of guided tour, I assumed. They all did their standard spiel, pictures, funny faces, jokes, etc. They all had their cameras out and they all wore the same t-shirt, some Big Ben tour bullshit. All but one. I noticed her standing in the back just staring at me. She was a good-looking woman, probably early 40s, really dark long hair and somewhat pale, which made me think she was English. She did seem to be part of the tour she stood with all the others. After the group finally took enough pictures and I realized I wasn't going to laugh, they started moving on, except the pale woman who stayed and kept watching me. Now, I've seen my fair share of people doing all kinds of stupid stuff to get a reaction out of me, but this was a new one. Not only that, but this lady was committed. Two hours and hundreds of tourists later, she still stood at the same exact spot, just staring at me. The day got pretty hot, and there was no way she was comfortable, but I shit you not, she was calmer than I was. She wasn't smiling, which was strange, because I assumed she was trying to make me react. About 30 minutes later, when the crowd around me slowly died out, she took a slow step towards me, then another one. Here we go. Joke incoming, I thought, as she took her sweet time walking up closer. She stopped about two feet away from me. She was looking straight into my eyes, tilted her head to the left, then to the right, which I assumed was her attempt at making me laugh. Then I realized this woman wasn't here to joke around. Still standing about two feet away, she started leaning towards me. There was something just so fucked up about her mannerisms that made me extremely uneasy. She never lost an eye contact with me. She kept leaning towards me while her feet never moved. Her face stopped just short of touching mine, her position seemed unnatural at that point. Her head started slowly shaking, like when you got out of the pool over a shower and you're freezing, you know? And then, he scared the fucking shit out of me. I had people screaming in my face. I even a moron tried to fight me. But what she did by far was worse. She opened her mouth as if she was about to let the loudest scream at me, but nothing came out. Nothing. She just stood there, leaned at an unnatural angle, inches from my face, letting a fucking silent scream or whatever that was, out of her wide-open mouth. And the speed of her shaking increased. Now, I'm not going to lie. Even though it was really hot that day, I started feeling cold and goosebumps ran under my uniform. I finally got myself together and started marching away from her. We are allowed to do a ten-step march occasionally. When I got to the end of one way, I stopped and I closed my eyes. I just wanted her to be gone when I turned around. As I made a 180-degree turn, I instantly froze. She was right in front of me, leaned all the way to my face, mouth open even wider, head now shaking uncontrollably. I was taken so aback I was unable to react. Noise, screaming, and other stuff I could deal with, but this silent, creeping fucking behavior was honestly intimidating me. Make way for the King's Guard, I yelled. We are allowed to say that when someone is in our way. She didn't react, but she did lean even further to an inch about my face. Make way for the King's Guard, I yelled even louder, hoping my face... Ugh, my voice wouldn't break. She had absolutely zero regard for my orders. I'm willing to deal with bullshit any longer. I stepped back and pointed my bayonet editor. That was our last resort for annoying tourists. Ten, nine, eight. Someone whispered in my right ear. Must be her. She was still in front of me. Ten, nine, eight. Whispers came from my left side. Goosebumps were now at an all-time high. Hilarious, isn't it? Combat vet killed more people than I'd ever want to admit. But now I'm scared of some batshit tourist lady. Ten nine eight, ten nine eight, ten nine eight. She sped up her whispering, then walked in front of me. Ten nine eight, ten nine eight. She was now whispering incredibly fast. Actually, whispering doesn't describe it properly. It was like yelling, 
but in a whisper tone, if that makes any sense. It was so surreal. She leaned towards my face again, whispering those fucking numbers frantically. I was about to break my orders. I couldn't take it anymore. There was something fucked up about this woman, and I couldn't deal with it. After my shift was done, I went into our base and told the story to a couple of guys. They all had some experience with creepy people, but never on this level. When our shift commander came, guys jokingly told him how I was abused on duty. He wanted some laughs, so he asked for the full story. But when I started telling him what happened, he quickly lost his smile. Stop, stop. Did you talk to her? Sir, I asked intrigued. Son, did you or did you not speak to this woman? I wasn't going to lose my weekly pay over breaking that stupid no-talking rule, so I lied. No, of course not. He seemed to calm down. Good. If she ever comes back, never talk about it, understood? And that goes for all of you. Choking atmosphere quickly died out in the break room. I was puzzled, but I was even more tired, so I decided to go home and sleep instead of worrying about crazy fucking tourists. Next few shifts went by as boring as they were supposed to be. Woman was nowhere to be seen, and my, since my girlfriend was about to visit me all the way from the Netherlands, I forgot about the incident. Tuesday night, around 3 a.m., I was woken by a loud banging at the door. For some strange reason, the first thought that crossed my mind was that fucked up woman from a week ago. Babe, would you mind peeping through the hole to see what it was? I lazily mumbled as I gently pushed for my girlfriend. She was dead asleep. I swore nothing could wake her. Semi-conscious, I stumbled through the hallway into the door. Who is it? I muttered while peeking through the door hole, but it was too dark outside. That sobered me up. Who is it? I asked again, but the only answer I got was louder banging. Fuck it. I thought as I took a deep breath and opened the door. There's about a million things I'd rather see standing in front of me at that moment. And there was only one person I did not expect to be at the door. My girlfriend. I was supposed to pick her up tonight. I nearly lost all control of my legs. A thousand things raced through my mind, which was having trouble comprehending what in the fuck was happening. Thanks for picking me up at Heathrow, asshole, my girlfriend said as she slammed the carry-on on my chest. I was still speechless. So I travel all the way from Amsterdam to see you, and you forget? Really? I wasn't hearing it. I knew I was half asleep when I got up, but there was someone in my bed. I wasn't dreaming, for fuck's sake. Stay here, I mumbled as I handed the bag back. What's wrong? Just stay here. Not knowing when I got the courage to walk to the room, I slowly made my way up. I know what you're thinking. In the movies and books, guy walks into the room and boom, it's empty. I fucking wish. I walked into my room and it was completely dark, but I could hear breathing. Heavy breathing. My pulse was so high I was sure I was going to pass out, but I flipped the switch. 765. 765. Whispers came from the corner of the room where she stood. That same fucking woman. She stood almost glued to the corner of her room. Her back to the wall. She was looking straight at me, and I thought for sure I had lost the power of speech. I managed to squeeze out a what the fuck? 765, she said as she took this first slow step towards me. Her mouth was always wide open as if she were letting out that damn soundless scream. Every step she'd make, she'd close her mouth enough to say, 765. I couldn't move. Nothing in this world existed besides this woman walking slowly towards me. What a creepy and unsettling feeling. Like, I wasn't physically afraid of her. I could take her down and I was ready to. But this kind of fear was something foreign to me. Something like I was afraid for my shit. I don't know. Soul? I knew she couldn't hurt me, but I was still scared. Not to mention I fucking somehow slept in the same bed with whatever the fuck she is. She came incredibly close to me, the familiar lean, and inch from my face. My breathing was so irregular and so loud, it was the only noise in the room. Seven, six, five. Suddenly, something about this had a strangely familiar feeling. What the fuck? Scream came from behind me. My girlfriend. I snapped into reality, turned around, and grabbed my girl. Run, I yelled as we escaped the room. We got to the ran- We ran to the kitchen when I grabbed one of those as-seen-on-TV steel cutting knives. My girlfriend was just silently weeping at my side, and I to ask even questions. I could hear footsteps. First, I saw her shadow. Then, I saw her calmly walking through the hallway. Her mouth was now so unnaturally wide open as she wasn't even looking at me anymore. She was looking at the ceiling as she slowly made her way to the door. Her, shed was sh- her head was shaking very fast. It was very surreal, I'm telling you. I mean, just imagine this woman who creeped out on you a week ago. And is now walking through your place at 3 a.m. in the morning, staring at the ceiling with mouth impossibly wide open. Not to mention you slept next to her for God knows how long. When she finally walked out, I walked, I ran to the door and slammed it. Girlfriend is still unable to speak. 
When we got ourselves together, I was afraid she'd think I cheated on with her with this woman, but she didn't. She saw that horror walk out through the front hallway, and she knew something was wrong. I was terrified, but I didn't let it show. The scariest part of everything was that I had a job that required me to stand still and not react to my surroundings. I told my girlfriend about my experience with this fucked up woman, but I didn't mention her ten, nine, eight, seven, six, five whispers. I didn't want to scare her any further. Because what could those whispers be if not a countdown? Dun dun dun. That was Sorry. that was really good. Sorry, I know that was really long. <laughs> no, that that was good. Um I almost want to wrap up on that. Can you do that? Uh, Can I tell a ghost story that happened to me? Yeah. Oh, I have I have a ghost story that happened to me. All right, okay. go for it. You can go first, Jim. Mine's stupid. Are you sure? Yeah. It's okay. Fine. Well, then, so, go ahead. I was it was it was when I still lived with my parents. I was driving. I had I had brought my some I had brought something home from work, and I had to drive back up to work. This was during the holidays, so we were there super late. And I used to take these back roads to get to the store. And um, it was super dark. It was really late. And I'm driving, and I, I, I swear this, this person walked out of the, the field where it's now like a bunch of houses, but it was just a big field. person walked out of the field just right in front of my car, and I slammed on my brakes. And then... And I, no, nothing was nothing happened so i got i literally got out of my car i walked around and then and then nothing and then and then i got back into my car and all i see was like just a bunch of smoke like almost like uh I, like almost mist or something go into the manhole cover that was like right right on the side of the street and i don't believe in ghosts but that i'll never forget that as long as i live was it Ninja Turtle? I mean, maybe. Julia, what's your story? Uh, so mine's kind of dumb, but the only time I feel like I've ever seen a ghost, I cat sit for these people who live in my mom, like on my mom's street. And the first, when I first started cat sitting, they had a cat named Murray, and Murray had diabetes, and I had to give him like his little kitty insulin shots all the time. So Murray passed, and they got two new cats. So... I was upstairs, like, playing with one of the cats, and, like, I saw, I, I th- thought I saw the other one, like, out, my back was to the stairs. I thought it went behind me and into the other rooms. And I was like, oh, okay, that's the, that's the other cat. But then, like, I looked in the other direction, and the other cat was there. So I saw a cat ghost. Cat ghost, that's horrifying. I know. Yeah, but also kind of sweet at the same time. I feel like that's the best kind of ghost to see. Yeah, it's not not terrible. Well, did I ever, Julia? Did I ever tell you about the story about where I used to live, uh, the graveyard at all? I don't think so. But I think you should know that both of our cats are staring at our dog in the doorway creepily. <laughs> I just want to be let. They just want to be free. I like children of the corn in the corner. But please tell your graveyard story. They're always like that, though. Um, so where I used to live, uh, it's basically uh, right off of a creek. And basically, the subdivision, the creek kind of does a weird like U-shape around the entire subdivision. So it's kind of impossible to miss the creek. Um, and basically... You, you want to classify these houses as old. They're probably all built in the 80s or something like that, with the exception of one house. And the one house has actually been there probably since the early 40s. In fact, like they bought a plot of land in the early 40s, and this subdivision kind of sprang up around it um, because they were too poor to buy the rest of the land. So that being said, the creek runs through some woods and behind this house in the woods, there is a graveyard and the graveyard itself 
It's nothing hugely special. There's probably about eight different tombstones. They're all were really weathered. Um, and they even had one for their pet cat. There was nothing uh, abnormal. There wasn't anything really creepy about it. And when I lived there, uh, I would actually go through the woods all the time, past the graveyard, nothing strange or anything. Um, now, if you fast forward to Halloween evening, um, I'm trick-or-treating, and I'm kind of walking around, and we're walking past this house, and there is a path onto the right side of this house that leads directly into the woods, um, directly where to where the graveyard is. And so we're kind of walking past, and we see uh, a guy standing there, and you know, this is not uncommon. You know, parents are watching their kids trying to make sure everything's okay. What was really weird about this guy is, is that he was dressed in all black. Um, and he kind of looked like an undertaker, I guess you would say. And when, again, I know this is Halloween, so take this as a huge grain of salt. He was holding a, an old gas lantern. And um, one of my friends was walking past him. I said, uh, mister, are you participating in, you know, trick or treating or whatnot? And he didn't say anything. He was just very silent. That's and... just, I need to interrupt you because that's just very typical. I can imagine little baby Jeff saying, excuse me, sir, are you participating? <laughs> well, shut up. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I didn't say that. My friend said that. Pay attention to the story. Sorry. No. I, I just filled in the blanks. Mm, of course you did very jeff thing to say i know <laughs> so guys just kind of standing there and my friend gets kind of creeped out and he's like whatever you know not a huge deal and we're kind of walking past and then all of a sudden the guy speaks he says you're not to pass the threshold tonight and we kind of like turn around and we're like what he's like you're not to pass this threshold tonight okay uh, we're just trying to get candy man and he was like if you pass the threshold behind me tonight grave things will happen to you and i was like um all right good to know so the next day uh we're talking to one of my other friends in at school and basically he was we were trying to talk to him about this guy and he's like oh yeah you know, he, he does this every year. And we're like, okay, well, what do you mean? This is the first time we've ever seen him. He's like, well, he used to stay directly in the graveyard at night to prevent people from, um, you know, fucking up with the graves and whatnot. He's like, but apparently last year, uh, someone got a little bit too close to the graveyard and they had an accident. I'm like, well, what kind of accident? He's like, well, they were in the graveyard at around midnight, and he was no longer there. Uh, he had actually, like, apparently gone to bed. And we found out later that the guy was actually, like, um, he owned the house, of course. He was one of the family members. Well, they are in the graveyard at night, and they were kind of fucking around. And we assume it's around midnight because uh, that's when they found the body. Um, apparently there's a little boy that died in the graveyard at around midnight, according to the coroner's report. And there wasn't anything suspicious about it, except for the fact that he was, uh, he was just laying there on the ground. He, it wasn't a cold night. Uh, he had adequate clothing on. Um, the, the craziest part was, is that it looked like his, uh, windpipe had been crushed. Nothing and suspicious about that at nothing all. Nothing suspicious <laughs> about that. And of course, and of course, they did you know an investigation and everything, and they found out there is no foul play. So, but there was there wasn't a huge like investigation into it. It was just oh, there is a boy that was found dead behind I mean, this guy's sometimes, house. Sometimes, sometimes your windpipe just spontaneously collapses. It's a thing that happens. It happens. It happened to me the other day. You yeah. Know? So, yeah. but basically, uh, the guy. The kid told me he's like that's that's why he stands there is to prevent any future deaths from happening because, uh, apparently the man told the neighbors that the his this, his uh, ancestors were not pleased with the child or something like that. This is a weird weird story. 
is a weird story. Yeah. So. And uh, that's spooky, scary skeletons. Spooky wanna, spaghetti. Yeah, I want to thank you guys for joining us tonight. Um, this is kind of going to be an annual podcast. This isn't going to be a brand new podcast that we're going to have every time. Um, we're only going to be releasing it on Halloween. Um, and let us know what you think of it. It is a different, it's a much different, um, podcast than we've ever done before. Um, especially kind of doing the, uh, the telling of a story in terms of actual written dialogue. So, um, let us know what you think. If you've really dug like the true crime aspect of it, I, I know definitely between the three of us, we could host a true crime podcast all of the time talking about true crime stories and that would be really fun for us um but yeah let us know what you think so thank or you for joining if, us if huh? not the creepy pastas the in the true crime the erotic fanfic we could we could do that you know i mean that was my favorite part I have no words for that. I was, making, I, I almost making told Todd, people super uncomfortable. Oh, yeah. I almost told Todd, I was like, I don't know, man. This might that might be on the chopping block, but who knows? Maybe we'll leave it in for shits and giggles. I'm pretty sure we will. We don't really edit much on this podcast. Um, so yeah, thank you guys so much for joining us. Uh, I've been your host, Jeff Stevens, and I've had with me Jim Keel. Goodbye. And Julia Aguire. Thank. And our producer, Todd. Thank you, guys.